Aloha, this is Pastor Perry, and I want to thank you for joining us online to study the Word of God together. We pray that you will be blessed as the Holy Spirit ministers to you through this message and through God's Word. Luke 19, 29 through 38. When he approached Bethphage and Bethany near the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples ahead, saying, Go into the village ahead of you. There, as you enter, you will find a colt uh, tied on which no one yet has ever sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you why are you untying it, you shall say the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went away and found it just as he had told them. Um, they brought it to Jesus. Oh, sorry. Uh, as they were untying the coat, its owners said to them, why are you untying the colt? They said, the Lord has need of it. They brought it to Jesus, and they threw their coats on the colt and put Jesus on it. As he was going, they were spreading their coats on the road. As soon as he was approaching near the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began to praise God joyfully with a loud voice for all the miracles which they had seen, shouting, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Luke 19, 29 to 38. Karen, thanks for doing our reading this morning. Would you pray with me as we prepare our hearts for today's message? Let's pray. Lord, we exalt your name. We have cried out, Hosanna, save us, and you have saved us, and we say thank you. We invite the Holy Spirit now to be our teacher, for him to help us understand your word, to understand you, for the Holy Spirit to speak through me words that are true and help us follow you more closely. Speak to us now, we pray, in Jesus' blessed name, amen. There was a recent Washington Post article dated in November of 2020, and the title of it was The Ugliest Presidential Election in History, Fraud, Voter Intimidation, and a Backroom Deal. And this New York Post article goes on to say, and I quote, the national voter turnout was 81.8%, the highest ever for a presidential election. But the number was clearly inflated, the article says. In South Carolina, despite voter depression, the official turnout was 101% of eligible voters. That's pretty good. <laughs> the article goes on to say the Democrats used repeaters who voted repeatedly. They printed fraudulent ballots to trick illiterate black voters into voting for Democrats. One Washington newspaper reported plans to send a threatening bellicose mob to the national capital to see that the count was made according to their wishes. The Washington Post article goes on to say, thus began the longest fought and closest presidential election in U.S. history. And in case you haven't guessed which election we're talking about, of course, it was the 1876 presidential election between Rutherford B. Hayes, who was a Republican, and Samuel Tilden, who was the Democrat. And although Tilden, the Democrat, won decisively the popular vote, Rutherford B. Hayes won the U.S. presidency, and he won it by just one 
electoral vote. 185 to Tilden's 184. So what can one person do? That's the question we're asking today. Well, one person can do a lot. One person can change a presidential election, one vote. Three years earlier, in 1863, one person, the then President Abraham Lincoln, signed and issued the Emancipation Proclamation that freed black slaves throughout the Southern Confederacy. One person made a difference. But three years later, Rutherford B. Hayes, who won by one vote, made a difference, and he enacted the horrible, racist Jim Crow laws. And we are still suffering because of one man's decision back in the 1800s. One person can change the course of a nation, the course of history, for either evil or good. And if that one person is you, as a Christian, you can make the difference in the world around you, whether it's your own home or your community, your state, your country, and perhaps the world. So let me ask you, what are you doing? Because every one of us is influencing people either toward Jesus Christ or away from Jesus Christ. There's no third choice. Jesus said, you're either for me or you're against me. Today, according to the Western calendar, it's Palm Sunday. And what is Palm Sunday? And why are we talking about the influence of just one person? Well, to understand that, we have to look at some Old Testament prophets by the name of Jeremiah and Daniel. And today we're going to go deep, but we're not going to stay there long, so don't panic. There's some outlines by the doors. If you didn't get one, if you're watching online, they're available on our website. We're going to first look at Jeremiah chapter 25, and I'd like to read verses 3 to 11. We pick it up in verse 3, and it says, From the thirteenth year of Josiah, the son of Ammon, the king of Judah, even to this day, these twenty-three years... The word of the Lord has come to me, this is Jeremiah the prophet speaking, and I have spoken to you again and again, but you have not listened. As I was reading this verse, it struck me, Jeremiah's been preaching 23 years. Well, I've been at this church 23 years, and I've been saying to you again and again and again, and you have listened. listened. Oh, I like that. Hey, those people have listened. <laughs> And he says, and the Lord has sent to you all his servants, the prophets, again and again, but you've not listened nor inclined your ear to hear. And what have these prophets been saying? They've been saying, turn now every one of you from his evil way and from the evil of your deeds and dwell in the land which the Lord has given to you and your fathers forever and ever. You see, the Jewish people, as we've seen, were given the promised land to dwell on it forever and ever. But they had rejected God, and they started worshiping false gods. So God sent them prophets and said, if you don't turn back to the true God, I'm going to kick you off the land. Verse 6, do not go after other gods to serve them, to worship them, and do not provoke me to anger with the work of your hands, and I will do you no harm. We're all doing work with our hands, and that work with our hands is either evil or it's good. And they were doing evil with their hands. And God says in verse 7, You have not listened to me, declares the Lord, in order that you might provoke me to anger with the work of your hands to your own harm. Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, because you have not obeyed my words, 
here's the consequence of disobedience. Behold, I will send and take all the families of the north, declares the Lord, and I will send to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, my servant, and will bring them against this land and against its inhabitants and against all these nations round about. I will utterly destroy them and make them a horror and a hissing and everlasting destruction. You see, when you disobey God, there are bad consequences. And they were disobeying God, and God says, I'm going to destroy your land. You better repent. And God says in verse 10, moreover, I will take from them the voice of joy, the voice of gladness, the voice of the bridegroom and the voice of the bride, the sound of the millstones and the light of the lamp. And notice verse 11, and this whole land shall be a desolation and horror. He's talking about the promised land. And these nations shall serve the king of Babylon for 70 years. God's very specific here, and he says, because of your disobedience, this pagan king of Babylon is going to take you captive after he destroys your land, and you will be in Babylon for 70 years. And God gives the exact number, 70 years. And sure enough, the king of Babylon came in in 606 B.C. He started taking Jews to Babylon, and then in 586 B.C., he destroyed the city of Jerusalem, and he took the rest of the Jews to Babylon. And one of the people that he took to Babylon was a young teenage boy who loved God by the name of Daniel. And if you've been in Sunday school, you've heard the story of Daniel. And Daniel followed the Lord even though he wasn't with his parents who loved the Lord, even though he wasn't with a society who loved the Lord, even though he was surrounded by people who did not love the Lord, Daniel stayed faithful to the Lord. Well, Daniel grew up in Babylon, and one day he's reading the Scriptures, the Old Testament Scriptures. And by this time, he's probably in his 80s, having come to Babylon as a teenager. And he's reading the book of Jeremiah, and he's actually reading the very passage that we just read. And he read it, and he said, God said that we would be in Babylon for 70 years. And he starts going, let's see, I was this age, and, and now I'm this age, and it's been 70 years. And how do we know this? Because Daniel the prophet tells us in his own book, in Daniel 9, verses 1 to 3, look what Daniel says. And again, he gives us a time reference. He says, it was in the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, of Median descent, who was made king over the kingdom of the Chaldeans. The Chaldeans is another name for Babylonians, and the Medians came in and took over the kingdom. In the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, observed in the books the number of the years which God was revealed as the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet for the completion of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely 70 years. Daniel goes, I'm reading the book. It says it's going to be 70 years. God keeps his promises. Look, it's been 70 years. So he decides that he's going to claim God's promise found in the word of God. What about you? When you see a promise in God's word, do you claim it? Daniel did. He took it seriously. And Daniel then began to pray and to fast 
because he knew the only way that God would restore the nation is if they repented of their sins. So Daniel starts to pray, and he was not an American. We Americans are so individualistic that we do not associate ourselves with the sin of our nation. But we belong to this nation. Any sin of this nation is a corporate sin. And so Nehemiah, even though he didn't commit the sins of his nation, he takes on the sin of the nation and corporately repents for the nation. Notice what he writes in Daniel 9 verse 4. And I prayed to the Lord my God and confessed and said, Alas, O Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant and loving kindness for those who love him and keep his commandments. And notice verse 5, for we have sinned. He doesn't say they have sinned. We have sinned, committed iniquity, acted wickedly, and rebelled, even turning aside from thy commandments and ordinances. One person prayed and confessed the sin of an entire nation as if it was his sins, and God responded and restored the nation of Israel and let them go back into the land. One person, which brings us to one of four things you want to look at this morning. Number one is this, if you're looking at your notes. One person, Daniel, rescued a nation by praying. Rescued a nation by praying. You may ask, what can you do? Well, friends, you can pray. You should start with prayer. In response to one person's prayer, God moved. Back in the early 1990s, I was a pastor on the other side of the island in Hawaii Kai. It was this time of year, it was time for the Easter sunrise service, and we had a bunch of churches coming together out in front of Moanalua Bay on the grass area there, and different pastors did different things, and then it was my time for me to get up, and I was going to give the sermon, so I got up, I had the microphone, and as soon as I got to preach the gospel message, it started to rain. And we're all outdoors, and all of a sudden, everybody's bailing. And I'm having this internal conversation with the Lord in my mind, you know, that takes like a nanosecond. And I'm going, Lord, someone should do something. And the Lord says, well, you have the mic. And I'm thinking, but I don't want to do it. And it's like, but do you trust me? And it's like, I'm not sure. And so I prayed. I said, Lord... This rain cannot be pleasing to you. Please make it stop. And immediately, the rain stopped. And I was able to preach the gospel message. And I've never been able to stop the rain since. <laughs> you see, it's not my power. It's the power of God using prayer. But it only took one person to pray. So David's praying, and in the middle of his prayer, someone interrupts him, an angel by the name of Gabriel. We'll pick it up in verse 20. Verse 20 of Daniel 9, well, while I was praying, speaking and praying and confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel and presenting my supplication before the Lord my God in behalf of the holy mountain of my God, while I was still speaking in prayer, then the man Gabriel, whom I'd seen in the vision previously, came to me in my extreme weariness about the time of the evening offering. And Gabriel comes, and now he gives Daniel some more prophecies. And it's a prophecy about Palm Sunday. He tells Daniel when Palm Sunday is going to happen. Palm Sunday is when Jesus presents himself to the Jewish people publicly as the Messiah. And Daniel is told when it's going to happen. Notice verse 25. 
So you are to know and discern, this is angels speaking to Daniel, that from the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem. Remember, Jerusalem had been destroyed by the Babylonians. And now there's going to be a decree by someone else, another pagan king, and he's going to make a decree that Jerusalem can be rebuilt. And he says, from the time that decree is given until Messiah, until Jesus comes, the prince, that's Palm Sunday. And then he says this kind of cryptically. He says there'll be seven weeks and 62 weeks. Well, the Jews use the word week, which means seven, like we use the word dozen. You can have a dozen eggs or a dozen kids or a dozen chairs. Well, they had weeks, and a week could be a week of hours or days or months or years. And in this case, it was a week of years. So if you add up these weeks, the seven weeks and 62 weeks, you get 69 weeks, and a week is seven. So you multiply seven times 69, and you get 483 years. So Daniel is being told quite specifically that after there's a decree to rebuild the city of Jerusalem, 483 years later, the Messiah is going to come into Jerusalem and proclaim himself to the Jewish people, and that's Palm Sunday. And if you do the math, and those who have done it, they realize that back in that day, a year had 360 days, not 365, and there's no year zero, and you put all that together, you come up with 33 A.D. And so Daniel is being told that in 33 A.D. the Messiah will present himself. And that's the first Palm Sunday. And guess when Jesus showed up? 33 A.D. Exactly as God had prophesied. But how did this decree to rebuild the city come about? Who made it and why? Well, he made it because of one person by the name of Nehemiah. Now, Nehemiah wasn't a prophet. He worked for a pagan king, and Nehemiah was Jewish, and his job was a cupbearer to the king, which meant you handed him his wine. But before you handed him his wine, you took a sip of it and waited to see if you died. Because they wanted to make sure the king didn't get poisoned, and your job was to drink the wine that might be poisoned. People didn't keep this job very long, apparently. <laughs> Nehemiah chapter 2, verses 1 to 5. Nehemiah is writing a book, and it's named after him, and he writes in chapter 2, verse 1. And it came about in the month Nisan, again we have the years, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, the wine was before him, and I took up the wine and gave it to the king. Because he's a cupbearer. Now I had not been sad in his presence. You weren't allowed to be sad in the king's presence, but Nehemiah is. So the king said to me, why is your face sad, though you are not sick? This is nothing but sadness of heart. And then I was very much afraid because you're not supposed to be sad in front of the king. And I said to the king, let the king live forever. Why should my face not be sad when the city, city of Jerusalem, the place of my father's tombs lies desolate and its gates have been consumed by fire? Then the king said to me, what would you request? So I prayed to the God of heaven. One of those things that he asked a question and quickly he go, Lord, help me. And I said to the king, if it please the king, and if your servant has found favor before you, send me to Judah, to the city of my father's tombs, that I may rebuild it. 
And because one person, Nehemiah, asked a pagan king, can I rebuild Jerusalem? The king put out an edict and said, we're going to build, rebuild Jerusalem. And that was 444 B.C. And 483 years later, Jesus came. And Nehemiah went to the city after speaking up, and he helped rebuild the city of Jerusalem with his own hands. Which brings us to a second thing today, number two, if you're taking notes. One person, Nehemiah, he rebuilt a nation by speaking up and by working hard. He rebuilt a nation by speaking up and working hard. One person. Friends, you may not be a gifted Sunday school teacher or a preacher or an evangelist, but you can speak up when you need to, and you can work with your hands when it's needed, and you can change a city, a nation. That's what Nehemiah did. He was willing to speak up and work with his hands, and that determined the date of the first Palm Sunday that we celebrate today. And that brings us to Luke chapter 19, the passage that was read earlier. We'll pick it up in verse 35. They've gotten the donkey. Jesus is on it. In verse 35, in Luke 19, they brought the donkey to Jesus. They threw their garments on the colt, put Jesus on it. And Jesus was going, was going. They were spreading their garments in the road. And as he was now approaching near the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of the disciples began to praise God joyfully with a loud voice for all the miracles which they had seen saying, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some people teach the crowd was fickle. One day they're praising him, and the next day they're saying, Crucify him. Well, it's not the same crowd. This is a small crowd of followers that are praising him. But the next week it'll be a different crowd who's shouting, Crucify him. Verse 39, And some of the Pharisees in the multitude said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. And he answered and said, I tell you, if these become silent, the stones will cry out. And when Jesus approached the city, the city of Jerusalem, he wept over it. Why? Because he knew the future. He knew that they would reject him on Palm Sunday, that they wouldn't accept him as the Messiah. And he knew the consequences of their disobedience. And so he tells them what's going to happen. Verse 42, if you had known in this day, even you, the things which make for peace, but now they have been hidden from your eyes. We pray for the peace of Jerusalem. He was the peace of Jerusalem, but they rejected him. They rejected peace. And then he tells them what's going to happen in the future. For the days shall come upon you, when your enemies will throw up a bank before you and surround you and hem you in on every side and will love you to the ground and your children within you and they will not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not recognize the time of your visitation. They rejected Jesus. And Jesus says, your enemies are going to throw a bank around you. Well, we know less than 40 years after this that the enemies, the Romans, came to Jerusalem to besiege the city. And the general Titus, who would later become the emperor of Rome, didn't want to lose his men as they stormed the successive three walls that surrounded Jerusalem. So the Romans built a fourth wall around the city of Jerusalem. And they built it in only three days. And they starved out the people of Jerusalem. All hope of escape was lost. 
There's a Jewish historian quite famous by the name of Josephus who lived during this time, and he documented what happened. Quoting from Josephus, he says, Then did the famine widen its progress and devour the people by whole houses and families. The upper rooms were full of women and children that were dying by famine, just like Jesus said. And the lanes of the city were full of dead bodies of the aged. The children also and young men wandered about the marketplaces like shadows, all swelled with famine and fell down dead wheresoever their misery seized them. Just like Jesus said. And then Jesus also said, and they will not leave one stone upon another. Well, when the Jewish temple was burning, it was covered with gold on the walls, and that gold melted from the heat, and the gold went in between the stones. So the Roman soldiers took stone off stone to get to the gold, and not one stone was left upon another, just like Jesus had said. And it's because Jesus said it was because they did not recognize the day of your visitation. They didn't understand Palm Sunday, that Jesus was the Messiah, and he's proclaiming himself as such. One person, Daniel, rescued a nation by praying. One person, Nehemiah, rebuilt a nation by speaking up and working hard. Thirdly, one person, Jesus, redeemed the world by dying. He redeemed the world by dying. He came. He was crucified. We will celebrate that solemnly on Good Friday. And then, I don't want to spoil it for you, but he rises from the dead. That's what we'll celebrate on Easter, but don't give it away, okay? God's plan is to save the Jewish people as well as the entire human race, and Jesus died to do that. One person saved the world. What can you do? Well, one person... Politically did some good things, another person did some bad things. One person prayed like Daniel. One person spoke up like Nehemiah and worked hard, and it changed a nation. And one person like Jesus redeemed the world. Which brings us to our fourth thing on your outline, the fourth point, the fourth question. What will the one person, and then there's a blank. That's for your name. What will the one person, your name, do? You can save a soul. You can save a community. You can save a nation. Maybe you'll save the world. One person can do a lot in the hands of God. Would you pray with me? I'd like to ask you to bow your heads. Even if you're watching online, join us for prayer. With your heads bowed and eyes closed, I'd like to ask you, on this Palm Sunday, have you accepted the Messiah? You've either accepted him or rejected him. There's no middle ground. You're either for him or against him. He came to save the world, but he came to save you as well. If you've never cried out to Jesus to save you, if you've never cried out, Hosanna, save us, I urge you right now, just cry out to him. If you believe he died for your sins, if you believe he rose from the grave, cry out to him and say, save me, and he will. Lord Jesus, as one person, Will you use us, each individually, but also corporately? Will you fill us with your spirit and allow us to accomplish the things that you've called us to do, no matter how small it may seem to be or how big it feels? Use us for your glory, we ask. And we pray all these things in your magnificent name, Lord Jesus, our Messiah. Amen.